0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for March 8th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks.
1: And mine's Evan Kelly.
0: And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today?
1: Well, Joe, I think that we'll probably keep things pretty consistent. We will discuss the news of the world, the news of the day, we will take ideas and opinions, no matter what the source comes from, and examine them from all angles in the light of fact, making sure that whichever topic we choose to interface with, we will do so in good faith, making sure to keep ourselves and hopefully our loyal listeners adequately informed.
0: Yeah, we, we try to, we hope that our discussions give charity to viewpoints that are not our own in good faith you know the kind of reciprocal hey if you're making an argument you actually believe it, it it's not for some nefarious other reason you know we'll, we'll believe what you say on your tin but um, but yeah we realize we're only human we don't know everything um, we, our viewpoints aren't the only ones that matter and we are not on the ivory tower by proxy um, so anyway Evan Yes, Joe. What are we talking about today? Joe, we're going to be
1: talking about the concept of giving people money. Holy shit. And yeah, whoa. You could
0: just do that?
1: You can. People are doing it. They're doing it. uh, They're doing it in Stockton, California. They're doing it federally. People are getting money. It's being given. You can give people money.
0: I'm giving Wendy's money a lot.
1: You can do that, too. I encourage it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so, so let, let's get into what's going on here. What, what, what do you got?
1: So I want to talk about this fascinating study that's coming out of Stockton, California. In 2017, Mayor Michael Tubbs teamed up with the tech nonprofit, the Economic Security Project, to institute a universal basic income experiment within the city of stockton california so this is a program that was run between february of 2019 and february of 2021 which said which stated that certain residents of stockton would receive a 500 dollars a month stipend no strings attached to spend however the, they saw fit so here's how the program was designed 125 people within the city of Stockton, California, in neighborhoods that were below the city's median income of $46,000 were given the monthly assistance. And I'm going to be referring to this as the Stockton UBI experiment. So the, the program just ended February 2021. And there are finally some reports on what the results were, what has happened because of this. So I want to share some of the good news and some of the bad news. And Joe can jump in and we can have a little bit of a, a UBI discussion without going into the full depths of universal basic income. Maybe it's coming. Maybe it's not. Who's to say? But today we're going to talk about Stockton. I feel so,
0: like the the general UBI discussion gets way more contentious than like discussing an actual real-world experiment.
1: Yeah, probably. Because –
0: UBI just, I mean, a lot of people use it to project their greatest ambitions for society, and then I, I feel like we would just have one of our nerd practical versus utopian, <laughs> reali- I don't know, just clash. But we could talk about this.
1: Yeah, we can talk about this specific <laughs> thing that happened. So the data that we're going to be discussing today is drawn from two independent analyses of the data from specifically the first year of the program. So this would be February 2019 through February 2020. Pre-COVID is an interesting thing to note. And these studies and uh, data analyses were conducted by the University of Tennessee and the University of Pennsylvania. So highly regarded research institutions. Like the
0: whole university?
1: Uh, researchers there. Every
0: know. everyone in the university studied it. Wow, that's spe- a lot of people behind it.
1: The specific scientists don't have <laughs> the same credibility as the universities, so I lend them institutional credibility.
0: Yeah. Um <laughs> I wasn't right, trying sorry. to be pedantic. I was more making. I know. Work, but I'm yeah. sorry I didn't play along with your joke. <laughs> all right, it's all good. Podcast all right. is over, everybody.
1: All right. No, no data was collected, and. Uh,
0: Nobody analyzed it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what good things came of the Stockton UBI experiment? One of the biggest things that was determined by the researchers is that the vast majority of the cash payouts were spent on food and other essentials. There's a big fear that if we give people a universal basic income... That they're just going to blow it on video poker or they're just going to drink it all away or buy a bunch of TVs and stuff. But overwhelmingly, that is not what happened in Stockton.
0: Can I make a little point here? Of course. I feel like a lot of rich people kind of tell on themselves by what they think giving poor people extra money would do because that sounds a lot like the way a rich person would explain what someone would do with an extra $500.
1: Yeah, it does. That's like a if really you give, good point.
0: If you give a rich person an extra $500, they're probably going to be like, yo, let's go fucking do something awesome. You know, <laughs> Everything else in my life is taken care of. This is extra money. I'm either going to save it or I'm going to go hog wild on something, you know, that I otherwise wouldn't have. So, <laughs> makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. But the the
1: calculus is so much different for someone on the lower end of the spectrum who can use that money to plug holes in their food budget or use it for childcare or car repair, and that's overwhelmingly what we saw happen in Stockton. In fact, the researchers were able to determine that less than one percent of the money. Was spent on alcohol and tobacco less than one percent so giving people money with no strings attached in stockton helped those people and their budgetary concerns it did not lead to profligate spending the second important finding of the researchers is that the subjectively reported mental health of people who received the universal basic income in stockton rose relative to the control group When people have a little bit of extra cash to smooth out their monthly income and to plug those holes in the budget, they feel less anxious. They reported feeling less depressed, and some of the effects weren't even purely mental. A lot of the physical ailments that come with stress, such as fatigue and types of pain related to fatigue, also were reported by lower rates after the individuals receive the basic income. So in terms of just a purely, did this help these people achieve a greater subjective well-being? It is a clear and resounding yes.
0: Mm-hmm. And good. then
1: the, the final aspect of the study that I thought was really interesting had to do with employment because there's always a fear or one of the biggest critiques of UBI, I suppose, is that it will make it so that people will be unwilling to work if they have cash coming in for nothing, you know, dire straits, money for nothing, chicks for free. Stockton didn't give give them chicks, but you know, close enough. Um, And what they actually found is that the people who received the universal basic income were actually 12 percentage points more likely to be engaged in full-time employment than the control group. So within this specific study, We found a positive impact on employment when people were able to receive a universal basic income.
0: That's, you know, I think a lot of people will kind of hear that and, you know, if they think about it for a second, like, how does that happen? How does giving people money make it that they're more employed, Um, did they give anything in the paper or am I free to give my kind of ramblings on it?
1: No, I would love to hear your, your opinion because right now it is a lot of data interpretation and I Mm -hmm. think we're, you know, qualified to do that at at this level.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, there is this idea that if you give people money that they'll just work less, but The interesting thing is that on the lower end of the spectrum, one, I mean, you know, sometimes we talk about universal basic income and, you know, on a, on this experiment, you know, this was basically $6,000 a year, or, you know, a lot of times people will talk about a universal basic income of $12,000 a year. And, you know, if you're living off of $6,000 or $12,000, um, congrats to you for figuring it out. But then also like that isn't like a very high standard of living, but back to how this increases employment. Um, so one thing that we know about the United States is that it's very expensive to be poor Mm -hmm. and, you know, there are costs associated with being poor, like transportation costs are higher. I mean, relative to your income, um, you know, just doing the basic banking or, you know, other things in your life, you know, is more, is either a more expensive or b just very expensive compared to your income. So one thing that can happen to people is that they can have a job, but then the job doesn't necessarily provide them enough income to sustain their life and then also being able to do the job. Um, this can be take several forms such as uh, transportation costs or um, smoothing over of, again, transportation issues or childcare issues. So if you're too poor, you know if you're if you're not making a ton and you're trying to have a full-time job and it just comes out that your car breaks down and it's going to cost a lot of money like you'll just kind of end up dropping out of your job um, because you don't have transportation and then also on the flip side you can't afford other modes of transportation that are generally available to me like For me, if I were, um, you know, I'm well off enough that if my car broke down, if I really needed to get to work, um, I would, well, first I, you know, I'd like contact people, but you know, even if I didn't have to try to rely on people, I could still afford to take a taxi every day to and from work or, you know, whatever. I don't think we have Uber or Lyft in this town, but, um, (laughs) You know, those options would be afforded to me. I could afford to do that. Whereas someone who is much poorer than that, me, (laughs) this is the weird empathy where it's it it can come off as bragging sometimes. But (laughs) but I I think you're
1: maintaining a good tone.
0: But someone who is of lower income doesn't have the income to spare to maintain their employment their transportation their childcare needs their familial needs you know every once in a while sometimes people will just drop out of the labor force because they have some sort of family issue that they really just got to deal with for like a week but you know uh they uh you know the employers don't want them back or um you know they just lose their job and you know so so having some extra money for these people who are on the lowest income scale, it having these extra dollars makes it so that they're ba- better able to um, take on the challenges that come with becoming employed full-time. Oh.
1: Absolutely. I agree with everything you've said, and I think that that's a really insightful way to consider it. I would like to offer... One other potential piece of the puzzle, because obviously it's multifaceted. And I would return to that second benefit that we discussed in terms of improved mental and even physical health is that it is harder to find and keep a job if you are also battling mental or physical health issues. If you have chronic fatigue and chronic pain from stress, it's much harder to keep a job that requires you to be on your feet all day or if you are depressed and anxious it's hard for you to get up the gumption to continue to hit the bricks and keep sending off resumes and job applications and so if you can have that little bit of boost i think it can help you get back into the labor force and then of course as joe mentioned you have a safety net to fall back on to if something goes wrong that would affect your transportation or childcare, so that you don't just end up losing the job for a one-time blip on your radar
0: yeah you know it. it's just it's i feel like a lot of people who are like middle income or higher you know There are a lot of people who just go to their job every day. They make sure that they're able to do it and all that kind of stuff and then kind of revolve around that. But when you're a certain level of poor, you know, like one thing that you're afforded when you have a little bit of money is that you don't have to do everything in your life to make it happen, Like Mm -hmm. if I wanted to, I could take my laundry somewhere and I could afford to have somebody do it for me. Um, whereas when you're someone who, you know, has less money, you basically have to do everything yourself and that becomes quite cumbersome. And, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if people who are on the very low end of incomes, relative to you know levels of employment that if there's more variability there and you know i think that was part of the study wasn't it like that the um like the variability of employment or uncertainty in employment went down so that um they had like either more secure incomes or more secure jobs just greater security yeah i think it
1: as i recall from from the write-up was that it's it's a greater security of income so if you already have that 500 coming in every month you have that baseline and so then if your income from a job fluctuates it's not felt as severely as a percentage of your overall bank account
0: yeah or you know you know these people at the lowest levels of income you know they're all hourly so like It can be the case where if somebody misses one day, has to miss one day or two days of work, that can set them down a spiral where things end up just not working out.
1: Absolutely.
0: Whereas, you know, I I'm salaried. I can take a day or two off of work um, because that's allotted to me and it won't really affect my income. And even if my employer, you know, said, hey, you're not getting paid for those days, then I could still, you know, I keep your I, job. I, yeah. I could still keep my job, but then I wouldn't be in a financial hole mm-hmm. um, that I have to dig myself out of. But, you know, like, hell, you were talking about the depression. And, you know, I thank God that when I went to university, that it was not a school that um, severely penalized you for um, absence because if that had been the case i would not have graduated college mm-hmm. because that that was like such a time where you know i was depressed and all that stuff and i was not showing up to very much class at all and if it had been the case that um you know you were penal i was you know overly penalized for not attending then i would not have graduated so i can underst- you know this ha- this applies to people in their jobs as well, you know, and, you know, sometimes it ends up being that you're just in such a mental funk and such a bad place that you can't go to work. Um, and sometimes that bad place is brought on by your financial insecurity, but you need to go to, you know, it's a, it's a catch 22 with your mental illness, but, you know, having that little bit of extra income is, is basically like bringing in an outside W for the person to help yeah. give them a little bit of boost.
1: Yeah, and that could be true whether they are waking up and feeling like they they can't go to work or waking up and just feeling like you don't have the energy and motivation to look for a job too if you are unemployed. Yeah. I think that um, it, it applies in both circumstances. And the, the good news from this study, the conclusion is that the universal basic income did provide that boost and it did offer a positive relationship with employment statistics as opposed to a negative one that critics would fear.
0: Right. Well, and I think, you know, I feel like a lot of the welfare conversation is, um, is based on how the welfare program pre the, you know, pre Bill Clinton was structured where no one's ever, I I've never, you know, there hasn't been a Vox article called, you know, what welfare used to be or something like that. Um, but I think that would be something very useful because a lot of it's a lot of our welfare conversations in the United States are colored by that, where the old school, uh, welfare in the United States was structured in a way where it really disincentivized work, where it was essentially that you got welfare and then for every dollar you earned, you received one dollar fewer of welfare. So yeah, so
1: you could make the same amount by working for X amount of dollars or you could do nothing and still get X amount of dollars. And then there was some sliding scale in between.
0: Right. And if if that's the case, then you truly are, um, you know, once people are on welfare and if they're not able to get a job that is really kind of worth a lot more than what welfare paid out. Mm-hmm. It is true that you could incentivize people to stay on welfare. But we're smarter now. We know more. We're we're in the future. We can do things like having, um, (laughs) you know, a differing amount of welfare taking. You know, we can do things where you know, for every dollar you earn personally, you lose twenty five cents of your welfare dollars. I know, crazy. (laughs) Where you can earn more and still, you know not just cap out on what you were earning before you'll still be earning more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but that's, you know, that's different to the universal basic income, but a lot of, a lot of our thinking. So people get very scared that any sort of welfare will be incentivizing people to not work when that was something that the old welfare system really did. But we, it just what it was more so the program's design than necessarily the program in general
1: exactly they're taking a faultily designed program and generalizing that to the entire concept of welfare which can work better or worse depending on the provisions that we write into it
0: right like, you know, part of Margaret Thatcher's rise in the UK was because, (laughs) well, they, they really did have this state after the world wars where, you know, a lot of the industries in the country were socialized and there was an extremely generous welfare. Like it was part of the culture that sometimes young men would just go on the dole, um, as, you know interfaced with you know the option of getting a job and starting a career or just hanging out and living on the dole. So, you know that's that's often something that people um you know so isn't the best for societies of, you know, prime age working men or people just in general um just completely choosing to opt out of the labor force. Um but that's a different conversation. So, um yeah so but anyway five hundred dollars is an amount that (laughs) if someone's able to figure out how to live off of that amount of money a month good for them um but i don't think anybody's going to be doing that and you know the people who were targeted in this experiment um at least i don't think would be reducing their employments you know can or the level of their employment condition on how much they're getting in UBI.
1: Yeah. And just to, to really quickly hit on the fundamental question of incentive, there's no incentive not to work. You get the $500 whether you work or not. So if you can find a good opportunity in something that makes you feel productive and pays you well enough to for you to feel like it's worth your time, you might as well because then you get the wage and you don't lose the universal right part of the universal basic income
0: right well i mean that's also like part of why a generous unemployment benefit is is something that's worthwhile as a society where you know the idea of the unemployment benefit is that you really only get it if you are laid off um, mm-hmm. whereas you know you you don't get it if you quit if you voluntarily lose your employment You only get it if, you know, the forces that be, um, the greater systems of the world terminate your employment. So the idea is to give people a somewhat generous amount of money that's somewhat equal to what they were making before, because if people are really cash strapped, then they'll just take the first job that they get an offer for because they need money. And, that's not necessarily the best thing for society because that job may not be something that really uses them or best fits them, or it could be something that they hate and, you know, they'll end up burning out on it. Mm -hmm. So you really want to, you know, it's a complicated song and dance we do as a society of trying to fit people to their correct employment needs. But, It is very valuable when you are able to do that because it creates stable employment, creates stable economic gains and hopefully
1: more productivity if people are in the right specialization. Right.
0: Exactly. You know, um, you know, if I were to be unemployed now and I ran out of money and the first job that I could get was like a factory job that worked a lot of hours. I wouldn't be nearly as productive as I would be if I could hold out and try and find a, you know, a truck driver manager job, which is like what I do. And, you know, is where I'm productive economically right now. Mm -hmm. So it's good to kind of let people take some time to be able to figure out what they're going to do and find something that better matches them than just the first thing. Absolutely. And and universal basic income is part of that, you know, Um, you know, one of the pipe dreams of well, I mean, I say pipe dreams, but one of the utopian dreams of universal basic income is that people will be allowed to not have um, their economic well-being at the forefront of their employment decisions so that they can be free to choose work that may not necessarily pay as much, but is more impactful for them. And, you know, if it has greater impacts that are non-economical, then that could also be great for society. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this all makes sense, giving <laughs> people money, good stuff.
1: Yes. And I, I want to pivot to some of the limitations of the Stockton UBI experiment, And I don't want to throw cold water on it too much because, for the record, you you guys know, I love the concept of universal basic income that fits into the Evan utopian ideal of how society could operate. And I think this study is massively positive. However... What do we do? We talk about things from all sides. We engage in good faith discourse. And so there are some good faith counter arguments to be made against this specific study. So I want to address some of them. Uh, Number one is that the scope of this study may be too small to make too big of generalizations about the role of universal basic income completely, especially as it relates to inflation. One of the biggest fears, and I think one of the most persuasive fears that certain economists and theorists have about instituting a universal basic income on a national level, is that by just pumping a bunch of extra money into the system, we'll have more dollars chasing the same amount of goods, which leads to inflation. We could also see rent-seeking activities going on, and that the gains will be illusory and won't actually hold up if the entire system is flooded with this money. And because only 125 people in an entire city were given this money, it may be a logical conclusion that, of course, these people were able to get ahead. They didn't have to deal with the effects of an entire pool of money flooding the entire city so they didn't deal with increased prices for goods and services they didn't see their rents jacked up just because they specifically got the universal basic income and in that respect i think it's kind of fair i think that in terms of some of the macroeconomic impacts of universal basic income we would need a much larger scale study to draw meaningful conclusions from when we look well, at right. size. Like
0: the way it is right now is that someone participating in a universal basic income experiment essentially has a lake up on the people who aren't.
1: Exactly.
0: Whereas if it truly was universal, we don't exactly know how that would all shake out. Exactly.
1: Um, because so much of economics that we think of in terms of absolute values are really matters of relative value. You know, are you doing better or worse than the people around you? And like Joe said, of course, if you get 500 free dollars, you're going to be doing better than the people around you who are similar, who don't have that extra money. So does that actually create a more productive society or not? Impossible to say based on this experiment.
0: Yeah. Does, is this a like just a whole-scale universal good or betterment, or is this just a comparative betterment and we're seeing the benefits of being ahead of your peers, you know, just in a smaller scale?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So another potential issue with this study being used to justify a more wide scale or a national universal basic income is not just the scope of the people who received it, but what those benefits really were. So the $500 a month is not a very large sum. We've talked about that. And furthermore, there was a set end date of two years. So when we talk about fears of people dropping out of employment, it's unlikely that that would have happened in Stockton. But if we were to institute a more generous universal basic income on an indefinite scale, It is possible that you would see more people choose to drop out of the labor force and, uh, I guess, live on the dole, uh, to put it in the the Great British terms. Um, But I think that the, the one silver lining here that Joe and I have already discussed is that Yes, I think that there are some people who would probably try to drop out and live on that scant amount of income, but the the offset for employment is that having some small amount of cash actually does help you keep employment for the reasons that Joe and I have already discussed, and the economic data from Stockton now backs that up. But in terms of the overall effect on employment, if UBI were more widely available, again tough to say based on this data
0: yeah yeah i mean this is what we run into a lot of times um, with these ubi experiments is that uh, you know we if we were to ever truly implement one it w- it's design would be to be indefinite you know where you know the idea is that You know, whenever you, you know, either whenever you're born or you turn 18 or whatever it is, you would have this income available to you indefinitely for every single month of your life. Whereas the experiment and that, you know, that would lead to someone making possibly different decisions than if they know they're going to get $500 a month for two years.
1: Exactly.
0: Because... Yeah, like you said, um, you know, no one's gonna, you know, choose to, you know, take that hit in their resume for two years if they, uh, if, if they, they know, know that there's the, a time
1: ex- ending. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Once the experiment's over, that they're gonna have to hop back in, and they're gonna be at a real disadvantage. So,
1: yeah. So I'm encouraged by the short-term employment statistics, and I think that those are perhaps the most encouraging finding of the entire study, but the full labor market effects cannot be determined from the Stockton UBI experiment.
0: Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like this is, this is a way from just generally the UBI, but like sometimes we get into spaces on the left where we don't want to emphasize the role of work in our lives you know we kind of want to try and and like decent like the united states is a very work centric uh world you know there's a whole political party that seems to be hell bent on making sure that any uh, money from the government is conditioned on work requirements Mm -hmm. um and you know and part of that you know i i think is a little too unfounded Um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense and just makes things harder. Um, but like there is a societal value to people working, you know, it is, it is good to have as many prime age working people working as possible because that creates, you know, the production that creates the prosperity. And then also importantly, it also helps fund the social programs that we have to help, you know, everybody else in the country. Um, so there is a value of work and, you know, there's, uh, you know, in the circles that I follow, uh, one of the big things that everyone is trying to make sure that is a political goal for this administration is full employment, whereas it's not so much getting everybody, who, you know, you know, every single person in the country working, but hopefully the economy is roaring enough that it can attract everybody who can work to work, to be productive. And through that wages can go up and, you know, we're better able to fund our social services and municipalities and, you know, know, pensions and all that fun kind of stuff. So, there is yeah, all value the stuff that, to that we're
1: behind on.
0: <laughs> yeah. All the stuff that we're behind on, um, you know, through greater employment and, you know, through, uh, you know, greater economic expansion, we can have that, you know, it's really crazy to me to think that, um, you know, in the past, you know, when the great recession came, you know, kind of full employment was, like, I would say people would think of it as a goal, but it was never like a stated goal. Like, it was to just get, you know, quote, GDP going. But, like, again, you know, and, you know, there was all the lessons that were learned from the Great Recession politically, which, you know, leads into our conversation next. But it's like it, <laughs> the recovery. I mean, now that we're kind of out of it, you know, we can kind of, um, you know, Um, No longer use the talking points of the day where, yeah, it was a slow recovery Um, that felt slow to a lot of people. Um, But and that was mostly because we didn't pump enough fucking money in and we weren't able to increase full employment because, you know, there was lagging demand because people didn't have money. So it was, you know, really trying to pull the economy was really trying to pull itself up by the bootstraps there. Um, and it, it's hard to do. It D- didn't work so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like Joe is
1: saying, we're going to talk much more about that in the next segment. I got just a couple of more of these uh, limiting factors that I want to discuss. Um, so here's the third thing that I, I haven't really heard from anyone commenting on it yet but it's it's definitely something that i think about is we have to go back to the funding source for the entire experiment to examine its political realities this was funded by a non-profit which was established by one of the founders of facebook chris hughes so someone with deep pockets who thought that it was valuable to study this and you know good for him that's cool Mm -hmm. but what it means is that we've had this universal basic income constructed in a situation where there was no budgetary concern for the city of Stockton, you know, they didn't have to face the tough political decision, how do we pay for this? Do we cut services? Do we raise taxes? They just got to have the cash come in from somewhere else. And so most of the UBI proposals that are talked about on a national scale don't rely on philanthropic funding and so when we try to extrapolate the political reality from the Stockton situation, we have to conclude that the communities that adopt universal basic income would necessarily face trade-offs that weren't present in this experiment.
0: Well yeah, and it's also part. <laughs> You know, part of every UBI proposal is kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod. You know, we pay for it, quote, unquote. Um, it hasn't. I don't know if it's been fully figured out yet or in a way that um politicians would fully admit to. Yeah, I think the best
1: payment proposals are just MMT, you know, yeah. like
0: I mean, that's modern I,
1: monetary theory.
0: A lot just of spend
1: it. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The 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 proposals that mostly come out don't really interface with the how to pay for it i mean of course every time they come up it's like well we'll cut the military budget and we'll save money on these other welfare programs but then but then it really comes up that's okay so you came up with let's say even a trillion dollars worth of money to do and this is a program that costs five so
1: exactly
0: (laughs) um you're yeah, came up with some, but you're really missing the mark. Um, that that so. was the, the funniest thing about Andrew Yang. And you guys know that I liked
1: Andrew Yang, but his whole campaign was based on math. He never did the math on UBI in terms of how to pay for it, which is fine. Because, again, you know, we're you might not have to pay for it. You might just be able to put it on the national credit card and that's all good. But if you're going to be the guy who says you like math and then you don't do the math, it's a bad look.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just um, it's one of those frontiers where it's an idea that seems like it could very much work the UBI, but it really comes to a question of how do we do it, Um, which is (laughs) I mean, that's the real thing. Like, I'm pretty sure we would have universal basic income a lot more out in the world if we could truly figure out how to do it um, more effectively. Um, instead of having, you know, outside sources to it, you know, there are some experiments that they've done in Kenya with, uh, universal basic income. And of course, you know, the money from that isn't coming from the Kenyan government. It's coming from, you know, like the, you know, international monetary fund or the world bank or, you know, some university in the United States. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, it's, it's not coming yeah, it's from more, It's more, it's more
1: philanthropic. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean shit it's almost like you know what we talk about with small town economics you know it's like got to have money coming in from somewhere because yeah we're not we're we're not going to be able to grow and prosper just on what's here um already so you know it, it's um it, it it's remained to be seen what the slow boring poor version of this would be <laughs> And not the Matthew Iglesias for, you know, blog, slow, boring. It's a uh, slow, forever, boring, bureaucratic check cutting for eternity. But <laughs> who knows? Maybe we'll figure it out. I hope so. Yeah. So one last
1: thing that I want to address is again related to the political impacts of universal basic income because I, was, I think there's this dream among universal basic incomes supporters, again, which includes myself, that if we just had the guts to institute a universal basic income and to come out in favor of that – we would win people over and you know it's almost a a microcosm of this idea that if we just did the progressive policies the voters would just fall in line and again this is sort of my own observation and my own analysis but that so badly failed here Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton who instituted this program, was roundly defeated in his re-election campaign, losing to his Republican challenger. He was not primaried, you know, he had the incumbency, and he lost to a Republican challenger by 12 percentage points. Ooh. Yeah, he was drugged. Yikers. Yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> Again, you know, the scope is small, and maybe if more people felt the effects of a universal basic income in Stockton, Michael Tubbs would not have faced such a horrible electoral fate. But it definitely frustrates the narrative that all we got to do is do the progressive thing and we'll win votes, because Michael Tubbs definitely did not. And I got to say, I respect Michael Tubbs a lot. I'm not trying to dunk on him or anything, but we do have to face the political reality that the universal basic income experiment did not save him.
0: Yeah. There, there is a way that sometimes progressive policies get talked about like they're just some magic electoral bullet as well. Like I believe in the goodness of progressive policies, but I also don't pretend that they are the end all be all, for electoral success i mean the, there's plenty of times where progressive legislation happens and there is um backlash from the public even if it helps people in a very meaningful way um mm-hmm. so it's it's not just some sort of yeah silver bullet it's- yeah
1: the the median voter looks nothing like the median podcaster
0: I mean, if if we really want to take this, I mean, Republicans for four years under Donald Trump had hugely unpopular legislation that they championed and really did nothing, and a pandemic happened, and yet somehow they we're close to having both this, you know, all three seats of government. Yeah. At, at, at the, at the, at the, at the federal level. And that's, a I mean, Dems ended up squeaking out a win, but it was not a landslide by any means. No. So you know, the, the politics is different than the policy now. Yes. But who knows? Maybe this will change with our next segment. Maybe transition music. Do, 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 do. Since I'm on my laptop still, it may just be me going do, 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 do. doing like the Wayne's world thing. Yeah. So the, the next part of giving people money is real world experiment or real world legislation happening right now. That's uh, giving people money. Um, so, just the day before recording here, the Senate passed the 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus package um, that uh, the Democrats have been working on in Congress. Now, um, you know the the I guess name drop. I guess it's the Joe Biden uh, stimulus package here, and um, it made it through the Senate, and um, so and it's expected to make it through the House, and then eventually for Joe Biden to sign it. But um, It's good. Um, (laughs) It's a it's a it's really good. And it's a lot of what we've been talking about is that it's giving people money. I mean, most notably, in it is uh, the checks for fourteen hundred dollars for most people in the country. I believe the cap is uh, people under uh, the income of 70. Yeah. And then 70 everyone under seventy five thousand gets the full fourteen hundred dollars. Um, there is the extension of the employment, unemployment insurance, which is keeping it at the boosted level of $300 a week, um, per unemployed person on the benefits. So that's in addition to all the, uh, the state unemployment benefits. So it's a continuation of what's been happening now, um, since the last bill was a, uh, enacted. And then also there has been the expansion of the child tax credit, um, which is moving from $2,000 to being 3000. Um, and then also $3,600 for kids under the age of five. And that is now fully refundable, which we talked about last week, which means if somebody's making $0, they're able to get the full amount of that refund. And I believe the limited reading I did was that this is refundable on a um, twice yearly um, schedule. That's so important. yeah. Yeah. So halfway through the year you could get half of your, Credit for that. So um, these are all big things that um, giving people money. And right now, that really just seems to be what is important. Um, There is a lot of kind of um, bickering from the left about things, you know, the branding of checks being 2000 when it was always the $1,400 plus the 600 from earlier this year. But the timeline kind of got expanded and there was an insurrection and that needed to be taken care of. So that kind of put a delay on things. I didn't and then,
1: get the
0: $600. You didn't?
1: No, I think I can like claim it and get it on my tax return. But yeah. like, I don't know. It was, I, I don't know the specifics of it. Lindsay got it. I didn't get it, but.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But, um, and then, I mean, hell, even with the $1,400, they expanded the scope of it. So they, um, I forget, but they, they, uh, I think they included dependents, you know, like adult dependents. So I believe college students who are like still claimed as dependents by, um, their parents should be able to get tax, you know, the, you know, the, the big money. um but really i mean the the bidding and 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 this also bill also includes a ton of money for states a bit a lot of money for vaccine rollout and um a lot of just general aid and i mean there has been some bickering you know uh (laughs) joe manchin has done some wrangling on some things that's quite frankly just in the whole scope of things seem kind of stupid but (laughs) you know the bill began as a 1.9 trillion dollar bill and the bill was passed as a 1.9 trillion dollar bill so whether the you know certain checks are big enough or things are widened out or whatever um that money is still getting shoveled out And it's going to be hopefully really helping the economy, finishing up this pandemic, help finish it up faster. And then hopefully we can get to um, doing our lives again and Mm -hmm. hopefully having a thriving economy on the other end of it as well. So that's, I mean, that's the basic level of it. Um, It's just, it's just been funny watching the senate the last few weeks um because that's the institution that really matters i mean we talked about it last week Is just how like in a 50 50 divided vote then like the you know the the one person who matters is you know the most conservative dem mm-hmm. at least in this situation and that's been joe Manchin, but Like, you know, a lot of people have been giving him shit and, you know, there's, you know, the, there was the vote on the minimum wage and, you know, talks about the filibuster, but really when it came to it, Manchin has, I saw somebody post this, that in votes where Joe Manchin was the deciding vote, he never broke with Dems. Mm -hmm. So... He was never the bad guy.
1: (laughs) Here's what I want to say in defense of Joe Manchin, as much as he's annoying. And I get it. Believe me. I understand the visceral frustration with a guy who calls himself a dem and then doesn't want to play ball on all of our stuff. But I saw a Facebook post recently from someone who, in response to Joe Manchin's no vote on the $15 an hour minimum wage hike, um, was just ranting, saying, damn it, Mansion! we're going to uh, donate money to a national cause that's going to primary you, and, and you're going to be out of here unless you, you become more liberal. And I think that is just the dumbest mindset to have. Yeah. Because let's say you do primary Joe Manchin for being too liberal. And let's say it works, and you run someone left of Joe Manchin in a general election in West fucking Virginia. Congratulations, you flipped the seat red. (laughs) And now
0: by a lot of points.
1: (laughs) And now you don't get that 50th vote. You don't have even the narrowest of Senate majorities. I know that it's frustrating that we can't do much when we have to appease Manchin. But without him, we can't do fucking anything. (laughs) So, um, you know, I get it. It is frustrating. I wish that having a majority of Democrats meant that we had a majority of progressives, but it just doesn't. And eviscerating Joe Manchin does not change that fact.
0: Well, and it's also interesting that 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 well, so there was a vote here the other day where Kirsten Cinema got in trouble for being a little cutesy with her no vote. Um, but and that caused a lot of Twitter outrage. But the vote was: do you want to overrule the Senate parliamentarian? and put the $15 an hour minimum wage hike in the reconciliation bill anyway. And to be frank, I believe it was something like a mid-40 number of Democrats voted for it, (laughs) Um, 46. But it was not the same as just saying no on a straight-up minimum wage. I mean, they had gone through the rigmarole of you know, going to the Senate parliamentarian and seeing if it was valid. And it was basically a vote of whether you wanted to overrule that ruling. Now, some people would say you could, but, you know, I, I believe that there are greater institutional reasons why, you know, at least in that specific vote, that one time that there could be a good faith reason not to, that isn't limited to, I just don't believe in a minimum wage hike.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of see it from both perspectives, because I understand that it's not as simple as voting no on a minimum wage hike. But at the same time, I think Bernie Sanders summarized it really well. He's like, "What what's the institutional value really at play? To, to listen to the advice of essentially an unelected Senate staffer? You know, is that a sacrosanct part of Senate procedure that the Democrats really need to stake their hat on. Yeah, probably not. I don't know. Um, I don't have to be in that position. Um, but, you know, I, I, I understand what you're saying, that it's not as simple as an up or down vote on the minimum wage hike. And also it does make sense to me on a certain level that a parliamentarian would rule that minimum wage hike is not, admissible under budget reconciliation. Like, I don't think that that's some weird and foreign ruling that the Senate parliamentarian made, but at the same time, it's just a suggestion and they could really do whatever the fuck they wanted clearly not enough people wanted to do it. And well, I think yeah. the reason why it's cinema who's getting the most blame for it is because again, Joe, this, is, this was in the pre-show, but you know, you got to delete your old tweets because there's a 20, <laughs> <laughs> there was a 2014 tweet from Kristen cinema before she was uh, an elected figure that they dre- that they dredged up where she said, it's so obvious that we need a $15 minimum wage. Just vote to raise the wage six or seven years ago. Fuck. It's 2021. Um, So so I think that for her specifically, she's getting roasted for hypocrisy, which is a little bit more fair than like attacking someone like Manchin, who has never apparently really been on board with $15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah. So it's not as simple as saying that the vote was about a $15 minimum wage. I don't think it's also as simple to say that it's about respecting Senate rules. It's kind of in the middle, at least as I see it.
0: yeah. Well, and it's always been interesting because um, Senator Senators, <laughs> he is not for getting rid of the filibuster, but he is also pro just completely ignoring the Senate parliamentarian, which <laughs> just seems like a very, very weird compromise. It is because um, he
1: should just want to get rid of the filibuster.
0: <laughs> right. <Come on. laughs> Like, I don't know if he's trying to do the play to be less inflammatory thing, but it just I mean, it, it, if anything, not getting rid of the filibuster and then um, just ignoring the Senate parliamentarian to me would create more institutional damage than just getting rid of the filibuster, like getting rid of the filibuster is creating new rules for the game, whereas um, not listening to the Senate parliamentarian is actively breaking the rules of the game as it laid out, as stupid as they may be. <laughs> yeah. As stupid as they may be, it's still explicitly breaking the rules of the game. And the whole point of politics is that it's setting up rules for a game in society to meter out differences without armed conflict. Institutional
1: forbearance and uh valorizing the opponent. I can't remember what uh yeah. and Zablat say, but blah blah, blah
0: blah. You know, forbearance. That's science. a big thing.
1: Forbearance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um so it is interesting. Um there is talk that after this round of stimulus gets um you know through that the next big thing that they really want to tackle is infrastructure. And this is interesting because Joe Manchin has expressed that, you know, I, I listened to a podcast that was about Joe Manchin, like every morning, Joe Manchin gets a text from one of his aides that tells him how much the national debt has gone up.
1: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Like,
0: yes. Yes, he cares a lot about it. Like, every morning, it's like, good morning, Senator Manchin. (laughs) The debt uh, today is however much. That is a however much increase from yesterday. (laughs) And I know it sounds ridiculous, but (laughs) it's something he cares about. But he has expressed that one of the realms in which he believes that deficit... Sorry, I moved my table. He believes yeah. that one place where deficit spending would truly be useful is in infrastructure spending. And I can't, you know, this is my speculation, but Manchin has also expressed that he is, he does like 100% will not vote to get rid of the filibuster. But there is actually some talk that he would be willing to move to um limit it or change the scope of it um so right now the way the minimum wage works or (laughs) (laughs) different tangent the way the the way the filibuster works is that um So the grand idea of it is that someone goes out on the floor and talks for forever and it takes up a whole bunch of time. And if it ends up being that a whole party comes together, then the Senate just comes to a halt and they do nothing, Um, which is, you know, the grand idealized version of the filibuster. But that's just not how it works anymore. Basically, what happens is Senate leadership will send out an email to all the senators offices. And basically say, can we do this? And if anyone comes back and says, "Um, no, we'll filibuster this, then they just like this doesn't have to be a senator. It could just be a staffer. It could be anybody. And nobody really knows except, you know, for the leader's office. And if it comes back that, you know, there's even one iota of a threat of a filibuster coming through, they will oftentimes just not even pursue the legislation Um, because a filibuster takes up a whole lot of time and you don't, and there, I mean, just doing things in the Senate just takes so much goddamn time. There's so many rules about how much debate there is and, you know, floor procedure and, you know, letting things be read aloud and blah, 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 obstruction, obstruction, both parties do it, blah, blah, blah. But, um, so one move that, people suggest for limiting the scope of the filibuster is making it so that everyone has to actually do it <laughs> for it to be effective. Like you just can't threaten a filibuster. You actually have to go up there and do all the speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's one thing. How would Another- they
1: enforce that though? If the, if the Senate leader doesn't want to fuck with it, can't they just choose to not bring the stuff to the table? Again, yeah. like I, I just don't see how you could how you could ever effectively write that rule in an enforceable way.
0: Well, I and it may also be that it may just be a well. So this gets to the other way that cloture works. So cloture is I mean, again, so let's talk about the filibuster, the filibuster. <laughs> there are essentially two votes To get a bill passed through the Senate. There are there is the vote to end discussion and then there is the actual vote on the bill, whether it's yay or nay. Filibuster happens on the vote to end discussion. So what the filibuster is, is just people going on and on during the discussion and, you know, making it annoying as shit. But the actual vote for the thing actually, you know, only takes 50, 51 votes for Mm. it. So there's some question of, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe these, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, maybe Chuck Schumer calls out the Republicans on their shit or or maybe they just won't have the vote for cloture, they'll just go into the vote and if it ends up being that they talk and talk and talk and talk then at the end that they could still have that vote mm. um there's also a discussion of whether to change the 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 way that it plays so currently to end a, a filibuster It takes 60 votes to come together, um, which means that in the apparently the number one thing senators hate doing is being on the Senate floor. (laughs) And so what it takes to break a filibuster is it could only be that one person is like one person of the obstructionist party is there but then it takes all 60 of the other people to come in and vote to break the filibuster there's some suggestion of whether they could flip that around and make it so that the blocking coalition all has to be there to vote to block it instead of all the people wanting to end it having to be there to vote to end it hmm. so where. are this could be if they can't keep their whole coalition together to block something, then it can move ahead, you know, without
1: without needing. the 60. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then that
1: seems like a pretty creative solution, actually.
0: Yeah. And then that's there's, encouraging. Yeah. And then there's one more that's kind of on the table. Um, I believe an old senator had it came up with this idea. I don't remember who. I'm um, just kind of vaguely remember it is that so one of the main arguments about the filibuster is that it helps enable debate, which it does not do whatsoever right now. But what if, you know, the the Senate is supposedly the most greatest deliberative body of all the world, which eh. um, <laughs> not at this time, it isn't. Um, so what if you actually wanted to make it something like that? So there's an idea of curbing the filibuster based on how many votes you have and, you know, if, um, or, you know, um, the amount of debate you have. So the idea would be, let's say you have something that could theoretically have 90 votes for it then it would be that there would be no discussion needed um because floor time discussion is where all that deliberation happens and all that bullshit. whereas the more you and let's say you know 60 votes is relatively minor amount of deliberation where it could um you know if you have 60 votes for it you can get by without discussing things a whole lot but Say you wanted to make it so that um, if something took only 51 votes, that there had to be 100 or 200 hours of deliberation where um, the Senate specifically sets aside time for deliberation on the bill and it goes on for however long. But it is still finite because. The whole point of the minority protections in the Senate, as the founders lay out, was to make sure that the not so much that the minority can control the agenda, but the minority could be heard, have a chance to speak up. And this would give the minority a chance to speak up. So the filibuster, you know, if you were trying to get something along real quick, but didn't have 60 votes for it and it was contentious, you couldn't do it. But if you are willing to stick it out for the debate, and as we know from like political science on American politics, that people often find that political debate on something means that it's tainted in their eyes and that if there's actual like, you know, arguments about it, then that it's not good policy and that only good things the only good things are the things that nobody talks about or gets, you know, real partisan over.
1: Yeah, that they just have sort of this, uh, acc- you know, they, they pass by acclamation basically. Everyone says this this golden bill must be passed by all of us.
0: Yeah. You know, it's only real good if everybody buys in on it or, you know, decides not to, you know, be a dick about it. Um, So the idea would be that, Yes, you could pass something with 51 votes, but then you would also possibly run the risk of making it seem like that this bill is unpopular by having a lot of debate about it, a lot of partisan rancor and all this kind of stuff. So there would be like a risk involved with it. But you, if you could just sit it out, then you would still be able to pass something. Mm-hmm. So that's another version of a filibuster reform but you know like i said they're looking to move on to infrastructure infrastructure is something that joe manchin is very much on board for and if there was just
1: just just give us like a, a little taste when when we talk about infrastructure spending what does that mean? Because I feel like it's something that's always talked about and it seems like everyone always supports and then nothing ever happens. Remember Trump's infrastructure week. Oh, thing? it's always, it's in every
0: week of Trump's <laughs> presidency was infrastructure week.
1: Yeah. I kept so, kicking that can.
0: Yeah. So there are a lot of projects out there in the country that are quote unquote infrastructure, um, that need updating and, or fixing to be more effective. So, Um, a lot of this is like, I mean, people talk a lot about roads and stuff. And I mean, the United States has basically built all the roads that it needs. Um, there are no longer any obvious interstates that need to be built. Um, you know, basically every major city is connected to each other and, you know, you know, uh, cities that are relatively close to each other have all the interstates that they need connected to each other so there isn't a whole lot of building that needs to be done on that but there's a lot of stuff with like water transportation that needs infrastructure built for it um so there are certain ports out there that um, could really use being um, made deeper um, to help accommodate greater traffic and and or expanded you know instead of just being made deeper Um, this enables greater uh, transportation because some of the 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 biggest boats right now out there that are the most economical are not able to go to every port so if more of our ports were able to accommodate these most economical modes of transportation overseas then that would you know result in greater goods greater flow of economic activity and you know greater prosperity for everybody um there are a lot of rail projects so i know like the uh I believe that there's a tunnel under the, who, which one is it? It's either the Hudson river or the East river in New York. That's like really fucking old and a lot of traffic has to go through it. But, um, you know, there's leaks in it because the tunnel's like a hundred years old and it really needs an updating, but that costs a ton of money and it's really only going to come from the federal government if they do something like that. And then, I mean, there are also other projects out there that are shovel ready, like certain uh, municipal rail projects and, um, and, um, you know, certain building things like that. But a lot of the infrastructure spending is projects that are stuff that are already exist and just making them better. Like hell, I mean, rivers, um, along the Mississippi river, there's a whole bunch of, uh, locks where, so, you know, when a river, is, I mean, rivers, when they kind of naturally exist, they will have rapids and, you know, places that flow fast and, you know, that's a lot harder for boats to navigate. So, you know, as humans, we've built locks, which are essentially dams that, you know, uh, curve the flow of water, but then there's also basically a boat elevator on the side of it, that moves boats up and down. And the Mississippi has a whole system of locks up and down it, but they are very old and they're pretty small comparative to what we can build as far as barges these days. So a big project would be making sure that one, they're the existing locks that we have are reliable and that the dams they're connected to are reliable. And three, that maybe we could expand some of them to create, you know, greater, have a greater flow of traffic up and down it to create more commerce. So that's basically what infrastructure spending is, that there's a, there are trillions of dollars of projects that have piled up over the course of however many years that still need to be done and would greater facilitate the country's ability to do commerce.
1: Yeah, yeah. Basically projects that would be improvements to transportation systems that would allow for more commerce that was a really good overview Um, so mansion he loves he loves infrastructure
0: yeah so the thought would be that you know one of the things on the filibuster is that it can sustain until they can't um you know this institutional roadblock you know the the senators will keep it as something that is a feature of the senate until there is just some event that means that it can't, you know, it happened back when it, you know, cloture was first introduced, you know, it was the moral crisis that was world war one that brought it about. Um, there was the curbing, I believe it was in the seventies. You know I don't really know what the crisis was for that, but I'm pretty sure it was something. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, we have definitely seen in the past here, Um, You know, in the past decade, you know, the crises uh, that have brought it about, you know, the Obama administration got rid of it for most judge nominations because they saw it as a crisis that, you know, the the Republicans weren't going to let them nominate any judges. So they got rid of it. And the Republican Party did it for Supreme Court nominees because they saw it as the Democrats weren't ever going to give them any Supreme Court nominees. So this could be the situation where something curbs, where all of Democrats are on board for infrastructure. Joe Manchin, importantly, is on for infrastructure. And Republicans are purportedly for infrastructure spending, but we know that they will probably be obstructionist. So there is a chance that this could be seen as the justification to at least curb the filibuster in some way or it could be an opportunity to Mm -hmm. so it'd be interesting i also just love um to be a little not um good faith for half a second i love how um a lot of the top Republicans, you know, your your Ted's Cruz, your 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 Marcos Rubio are <laughs> you um, pluralize
1: it like attorneys general.
0: Yeah. That's a joke <laughs> that uh, Jane Coaston and uh and a uh, Dara Lind would do on the Weeds podcast, and I always like doing that. That's a it's um, a good bit. Um they're out there saying, you know, Ted Cruz, we need to reopen our schools when he just did not vote for a bill that chooses to reopen schools you know give them the resources to open or oh fuck you know the whole dr seuss thing this week i mean it's (laughs) it's just so stupid also i love how not a single person engaging in the dr seuss culture war um actually you know holds up any of the canceled books instead they they hold up green eggs of ham and cat in the hat (laughs)
1: Like people still like those books. They they are not being taken down. You, you, when you buy those books to spite them, you're giving money to the people who you claim yes. are your enemies.
0: Well, and that's the, I, I mean we're on a tangent now. I think is this the is this the end segment? I don't know, but um, I love talking about the Beach Boys. Uh, yeah, but I are we? I don't know. Um, Who's to say? (laughs) Who's to say? You decide, listener. Um,
1: (laughs) Call in right now on this not live show.
0: Yeah, but I love how. Oh, what was it? Oh, God, I lost it. Oh, shit, sorry. Dr. Seuss. Uh, I know it's in the Dr. Seuss land. Oh, here's what I wanted to say. It took me a half a second. But they act like it's not that the Dr. Seuss estate decided to not print these. Yeah. They act like there is some cancel culture Twitter mob who made it happen. Like that's all the cancel culture stuff is that there is some vague notion of some they out there who is forcing all these companies to do these things. Well, sometimes it's not like I remember Keurig decided to like stop sponsoring Sean Hannity's show. So everybody went and destroyed their Keurig, but like, I don't know. Some like this Dr. Seuss one is really weird because it's the Dr. Seuss estate that made the decision to stop publishing them, but everyone went out and bought their books.
1: Yeah. This was not on people's radar. There was no push to get rid of these obscure Dr. Seuss books. Joe, I bet they could have just announced, we are not publishing these books because they're old and obscure and nobody buys them anymore, and nothing would have happened. But because they announced it was for a social justice reason, everyone is up in fucking arms.
0: Yeah. Well, that's also just weird how... I don't know I feel like a whole I mean we've had this I mean I we very explicitly had this conversation of like censoring and not publishing and you know I think we ended up coming down on the side of things should be published but you know with context on them Mm -hmm. but then again it's still the you know the choice of you know whoever does it to make that decision um you know within the context and and normally i mean republicans are the ones who believe that companies should have the right to do what they want <laughs> um so it's weird that they think that the company of doctor seuss's estate should make the decision to um should be forced to keep publishing books that they don't necessarily agree with anymore
1: or, or disney Thinker and yeah Because that's been the other big thing with this. This is its own end segment at this point. Um, The Disney Plus has put context warnings again in front of several episodes of the Muppets, the original Muppet Show from like the 70s, based on certain episodes containing outdated and offensive stereotypes. And yeah, for some reason, that got distilled by Donald Trump Jr. at CPAC as they canceled the Muppets again who is this they? I don't know. It's the company who owns the Muppets who made this decision. Again, it's not like, you know, someone on Twitter was demanding this. They just decided this is what we should probably do. Um, They took down a couple of other episodes for unrelated reasons because they they didn't want to pay the music copyrights uh, for some of the songs, but there's no Muppets that have been censored and removed entirely from the platform due to offensive stereotypes, as opposed to that D and D episode of Community that you can't find anymore just because Chang's in blackface.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah, it is just. It's very interesting that you know there is just some, supposedly just some mystical they who's canceling things whoever they are they're quite powerful
1: yeah but i mean <laughs> i mean
0: you know i i've been thinking about this and you know we've done the conversation of like you know canceling is not something new it's just mm-hmm. um the current context that we live in and just twitter mobs is kind of the i mean used to be the uh the you know the focal point of all this but you know, it is interesting that, you know, that when there were things that were canceled because of their left wing views, it was like it it feels like it would happen immediately. Like there was never retrograde cancellation of left wing ideas. Um, so like if someone came out as gay, like they were immediately canceled. <laughs> Or, you know, if Dr. Seuss back in the day had basically written the communist manifesto, but for kids, (laughs) he would have been canceled um, kind of immediately, whereas this kind of right wing, you know, cancellation of things that are more right wing or or as Evan and I would probably say more specifically just kind of insensitive stuff but because of the you know partisan world and culture wars it's branded as right wing that that kind of stuff you know was generally accepted by people or that it was something that was okay to do and now it's not so i i can kind of see how people would be like i'm livery i'm living in a slippery slope where i don't know one day the the butter wars was okay but now (laughs) now what's next i'm not going to be able to buy oranges at the store like (laughs) i mean to us it sounds ridiculous but i guess to somebody who really doesn't understand why those things were canceled it would make as much logical sense to them
1: yeah Um, I mean, you just got to keep it all in perspective. You know, they've stopped publishing these very old book titles. You can buy them secondhand. There's nobody going through and eradicating all of the copies of this book. You know, there's no law that's been passed that says you can't read this book. Um, It's just a company who's decided they don't want to sell it anymore. Books go out of print every day. You know, more titles than you could fathom go out of print every day.
0: I can't wait for the uh, Matthew Iglesias blog this week that where he's going to really tackle copyright. copyright. Yeah, because here's
1: the thing. I, I'm so confused by this because his initial take was... That we should shorten the term of copyright, which is something that I thought was fairly uncontroversial. And then that's gotten him more blowback than almost any of his takes. And I was baffled because that's such a no-brainer to me (laughs) that copyright terms are too long. Like, who's opposing that?
0: (laughs) A bunch of writers (laughs) um, came at him. Like oh man I, I reading some of the replies to that original tweet were something else like one guy basically deemed it that um, <laughs> that a uh, that a writer by right should have their copyright extended because they have a right to a pension based on the book sales afterwards. And I was like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. I, there is nothing like that in society anywhere else (laughs) (laughs) where you do an economic and then 40 years later still, um, still, uh, have a guaranteed right to reap the benefits of that.
1: Yeah. And I would, you know, I would definitely maybe push back, you know, maybe 30 years as Iglesias proposes is too short, but yeah, it seemed like people were objecting to the idea that copyrights should ever expire. And that was baffling. Yeah. Cause what, what are we up to now? Like life of the author plus 99 years or something.
0: It's either 70 or 99, somewhere in that range. Which is fucking ridiculous.
1: It's yeah, we're we're not in danger of overcorrecting the opposite way. You know, like we got to we got to shorten this down. (laughs)
0: Life of the offer plus 20. Let's make a compromise. Let's
1: (laughs) I I would accept that deal. Joe Manchin would accept that deal.
0: Yeah, but I
1: don't know if he would. I don't know the man.
0: But yeah, the the whole the whole point of it was that. You know, if the copyright had expired on these Susan books, then um, Susan, ooh, that's good. Ooh. Um, then, then they could be in print however much, you know, anybody could make the decision to print them, you know. Mm-hmm. But right now, because of how copyright works, there's this one single entity that is the Dr. Seuss estate that gets to choose what's published or not. Even years, 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 years after the man has died. So Mm -hmm. here we are. Well, I think we should get canceled. Let's cancel this episode.
1: Yeah, we'll cancel ourselves briefly.
0: Yeah. So hopefully the music is going. Um, Six seasons in a movie. Yep. Um, This episode is now canceled. We're at the end of it um is there anything you would like to say to wrap up evan
1: thank you to the beach boys no one will understand
0: yeah yeah we keep mentioning our pre-show ramblings that aren't recorded and you know I, i it's super great for the listener um but um we hope that you've been um you know, enjoying. <laughs> I almost went into the <laughs> whole bit. Um, we hope that you've been enjoying this show. Thanks for listening. We'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. But anyways, my name's Joe Hicks and mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been
1: adequately informed.